Words are powerful, right? Do you believe this? It was with words that God spoke everything into being. Let there be light. As we read the scriptures, we see that people's words are strong too. People's words have the power to build up and tear down. They have the power to call to violence and to create peace. People's words have the power to praise God, but also to curse him. The power of words sometimes can influence whole cultures and beyond. See if you recognize some of these words. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. You must be the change you want to see in the world. You've probably heard of those, right? What about this one? Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom of heaven on earth. Who said that one? Okay, good. <laughs> John Wesley from one of his letters, right? Sisters and brothers, as great as all these quotes are, and aren't they great? They're not nearly as powerful as what Dr. E. Stanley Jones has called the, the earliest Christian creed. Here it is, the earliest Christian creed, the three most powerful words in human history. These three words have changed the world for good forever. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's it. Those three words are the most powerful words since God spoke all that is seen and unseen into existence. Amen? Jesus is Lord. Dr. Jones used to greet all the people that he worked with all around the world by holding up those three fingers. Jesus is Lord because all that he and his co-laborers did together was centered on those three powerful words. So I want you to do it with me. Jesus is Lord. Do it again. Jesus is Lord. Not only have those words changed the world for good forever, they've probably changed your life too, haven't they? They changed my life and my family's life in a whole bunch of ways. After a period of prayer and discernment, my wife and I decided that we were going to uproot our family of five and move 2,200 miles from sunny Southern California here to Kentucky. <laughs> and as we told our friends in Southern California about this, their first response almost always was, Kentucky? Are you sure? <laughs> And our only answer was that Jesus was asking us to go. And since Jesus is Lord, then our answer, of course, was yes. Was yes. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we long to hear from you. Jesus, we look to you as Lord and follow your example. Holy Spirit, open our ears. Open our eyes so that we might hear and see what you have for us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so what does all this talk about Jesus as Lord have to do with the text that, that Ruth and that Tyler read so well for us from Acts and from Isaiah? Well, you know, the ancient Israelites and Second Temple Jews, they, they all knew God, Yahweh, 
as Lord. They knew God was Lord. We see this in Isaiah 42. I love this part. God takes being the Lord very seriously, doesn't he? He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another. So we come to Acts 10.36, and Peter's preaching in the house of Cornelius, this Roman centurion, and he refers to Jesus, to Jesus as the Lord of all. Our ears should perk up because Peter was a Jew, a second temple Jew. He knew that God alone, that Yahweh alone was Lord. He likely recited the Shema from Deuteronomy 6 as part of his personal and his communal spiritual practices. So Peter knew full well that the Lord is God and the Lord is one. But now he's referring to Jesus as Lord. How? And he's referring to Jesus as Lord of all. How so? Well, a brief walkthrough of Peter's sermon shows us how the apostle concluded that Jesus is Lord. Beginning in verse 37, Peter starts to share the ancient kerygma, this, this apostolic preaching of salvation through Jesus Christ. He situates his preaching in the province of Judea after the time of John the Baptist's ministry when Jesus, using Peter's words, was anointed by God with the Holy Spirit and power. Peter then says that Jesus went around doing good and healing all those who were under the power of the devil. But how was Jesus able to do this? We see in verse 38, God was with him. Peter continues by saying that he and others, they are direct witnesses of everything Jesus did in the country of the Jews in the city of Jerusalem. They're also witnesses of his death, where Jesus was killed by being hung on a cross. But Jesus didn't just die and stay dead, amen? In verse 40, Peter tells Cornelius and those in his household that on the third day, God raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah, right? Not only that, but God has also caused Jesus to be seen. By whom? Who had the privilege of seeing the risen Jesus? Well, not everyone, but witnesses that God had already chosen, namely all those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Those are the ones that were chosen as witnesses we see in verse 41. And the fact that Peter includes this detail about eating and drinking is convincing evidence that this risen Jesus is not some bodiless phantom, but instead he was risen bodily. Though, as the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 3, his body is not like our lowly bodies anymore. It's his now resurrected and glorious body, the one that we await in the bodily resurrection as well. Peter continues in verse 42 by saying that the risen Jesus commanded him and the other disciples to preach to the people and to testify that he, that Jesus is the one that, that God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. This one, this risen Jesus, this judge appointed by God the Father is the one that the prophets testify about. He's the one by whom anyone can receive forgiveness of their sins through believing in his name, by trusting in him. In his sermon in Acts 10, Peter is sharing the good news, but this good news is the good news of the peace of God. It's how he starts it out at the beginning. And this peace is available through Jesus, and, and the peace that Peter's preaching about is the fulfillment of what Luke wrote that the angels sang in chapter 2 of his gospel. Glory to God 
in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those <clears throat> on whom his favor rests. This peace that the, that the risen Savior brings comes because Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord and he commands the disciples to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, then surely this proves that God doesn't show favoritism. He doesn't show favoritism. Instead, he accepts those from every nation who fear him and who do what is right. We see that in verses 34 and 35. Jesus is Lord, and he's the Lord of all, the Lord of all. That title, Lord of all, was sometimes applied to God in the Old Testament, namely that God is the Lord of all creation or other kinds of honorifics that are similar, and it was also used to refer to pagan gods, especially within the ancient Egyptian pantheon. But in this context, in the home of a Roman centurion, what's probably a bit more interesting is that Roman emperors are sometimes referred to as the Lord of all, indicating that their dominion, their rule extends over everyone. Sisters and brothers, Peter is a second temple Jew, and, and as such he can stand in the home of Cornelius, a representative of the pagan oppression of God's people. He's a Gentile centurion, and, and, and yet Peter can preach the good news of Jesus. Why? Because of those three powerful words, Jesus is Lord. The pagan gods aren't Lord. The Roman emperor is not Lord. Jesus alone is the Lord of all. That's all well and good, but what does that mean for us in the 21st century? Here in Wilmore or wherever you might be that's listening to me preach or, or wherever else God might send us, what does that mean for us today? Why do we need to hear from this passage this morning? Well, if Jesus is Lord, then it follows that nothing or no one else is. If Jesus is Lord, then nothing and no one else can also be Lord. The Lordship of Jesus is in continuity with the Lordship of Yahweh, since Jesus is the Father's co-eternal Son, to quote Charles Wesley. If this is true, and nearly 2,000 years of wide Christian consensus says it is so, then, then Jesus is Lord, and there is no other. But there are pseudo-lords out there, aren't there? They're vying for our attention. They are vying for our devotion and our worship. Of course they are. And, and we know that there are myriads of other religions and that each promote their conception of that which is Lord, but friends, that's the low-hanging fruit. It's self-evident that there are other religions asking us to be their adherents. Of course there are. But what's less self-evident is that there are many other pseudo-lords out there that we would not traditionally consider as part of religious thought. In my humble estimation, I want to share with you a few of them, a few pseudo-lords that are vying for our attention, our devotion, and our worship. Our political affiliations, whether right or left or otherwise, want to be our Lord. Our ethnic and cultural identity wants to be our Lord. Our addictions and our obsessions want to be our Lord. Our schedules, whether they're full or empty, <laughs> our schedules want to be our Lord. Our sexual and gender identity wants to be our Lord. Our own idea of how our lives should go wants to be our Lord. Our need for control wants to be our Lord. Our faith 
traditions want to be our Lord. Our friends and family want to be our Lord. At the very bottom of it all, if we're honest, which we're not always honest, but if we are, at the bottom, we want to be our Lord's, don't we? This is selfish ambition. This is pride. It's at the bottom of our human nature. It's what John Wesley called inbred sin. That is the being of sin, our very sinful nature. This is what we all long to be free from. We've been set free from the guilt of sin, thanks to the grace Jesus provides. We've been set free from the power and the dominion of sin, thanks to the grace that Jesus provides. But sisters and brothers, we all long to be set free from the very being of sin by being sanctified through and through by the grace of Jesus through the power of the Spirit of God. Amen? So why is this passage important? It's important because in this passage we see with crystal clarity that Jesus is Lord, meaning that no one and nothing else can be. Remember the words from Isaiah 42, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another. Therefore, as we follow Jesus, we have to keep our eyes focused on him, our Lord, and on no others. We must fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, right? But how? How do we do this? How do we live out this central truth that Jesus is Lord? How do these three words, Jesus is Lord, impact our daily lives? Well, I think the context of this passage provides the most obvious clue. Peter was inspired by the Spirit of God to include into the family of God Cornelius, a Gentile centurion who is an active part of the oppression of God's people. Friends, Jesus is Lord of all. He's Lord of Jews and Gentiles. He's Lord of oppressors and the oppressed. He's Lord of Democrats and Republicans, of Wesleyans and Calvinists, of people of all different cultural and ethnic descents. Jesus is Lord, sisters and brothers, of all the different ways that we have inherited and invented to separate ourselves from each other. Jesus is Lord. And he's alone the Prince of Peace, the one that doesn't show favoritism but brings the good news of peace to all. Therefore, of course, we should be people who are welcoming and loving of others, just as Jesus always sought out those who were different. He always sought out those who were lonely, those who were outcasts, those who were overlooked. We should as well. Just as Jesus crossed borders and traditional boundaries for the sake of others, we should as well. Just as Jesus treated all those he encountered as people created specially in the image of God, we should as well. Now, another application is found in what we just talked about a minute ago. Jesus is Lord of all, and all those pseudo-lords are not. Thus, are our lives indicating that we're giving our attention, our devotion, and our worship to any of these other pseudo-lords? I'm going to say that again. Are our lives indicating that we're giving our attention and our devotion and our worship to any of the pseudo-lords, the false lords. Now that's something that we're going to have to parse out with the help of the Spirit of God. Each of us, whoever we are, we need to open ourselves to the examination of the Spirit and see if there are places in our lives where we are more influenced by things and people rather than Jesus. 
And when we do this, we must ask for the Spirit's assistance to help us see rightly, and then we've got to be brutally honest with ourselves. Why lie? Why pretend? Let's be honest about it. What are we tempted to allow to take Jesus' place at the center of our lives? Is it our academics? Is it our relationships? Is it our hopes for the future, or maybe it's our fears? Is it our health? Our sense of control? Our desire for certainty? Our insistence on always having fun? Is it our wish to look good for others? Is it our calendars, our friends, our families? Is it our need for isolation? Is it a desire for social interaction? What is it, sisters and brothers, that we're, that we're tempted to place at the center where only Jesus deserves to be? Only Jesus deserves to sit at the center of our lives. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. And he's Lord of all. Not just part of your life. Not just your devotional life, your spiritual life, your seminary life. He's the Lord of all of your life and all of my life. Friends, I want us to spend a few quiet moments right now asking the Spirit of God to reveal areas of our lives where we are barring Jesus from being Lord of all. Let's use the index cards we were given, and I want you to write down some of those pseudo-lords that we've allowed into Jesus' rightful place? What are some of those things that we're allowing to sit at the center of our lives instead of allowing Jesus to be there? At the end of the service, after the benediction, we'll come and place them in these baskets here in the front, and we'll use these cards next Wednesday at the night of prayer and praise as part of an artful expression of prayer. So will you pray with me now? I'll begin our time of reflection and we'll spend two or three minutes with some quiet music and then I'll come back and conclude. Pray with me. Spirit of God, bring your insight into our lives in these very moments. Show us where we're tempted to bend the knee to pseudo-lords instead of to Jesus alone. Speak your truth to us, Spirit of God. Thank mm -hmm. you.